Welcome to On the Porch, the podcast. Thanks for joining us. I get asked a lot for book recommendations, and the book I have been telling everyone to read ever since it was published in July is Late Migrations by Margaret Rinkle, a collection of short, precise essays that work together into a devastatingly lovely whole. Late Migrations is about nature and grief, longing and healing, birds and dogs, and much more. It is the book of the year as far as I'm concerned. So I'm very happy to have Margaret on the show today to talk about Late Migrations. Besides being the author of Late Migrations, Margaret Rinkle is also a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, where her essays appear each Monday. They are must-reads. Her work has also appeared in Literary Hub, Oxford American, The Southern Review, and many other places. A native of Lower Alabama, she is a graduate of Auburn and the University of South Carolina, and she lives in Nashville. Welcome to On the Porch, Margaret. Thank you for having me, Silas. Thanks so much for being here. I've said that your book is called Late Migrations, but there is also a subtitle, which is A Natural History of Love and Loss. I just wanted to get that in there. So why don't you tell our listeners what you want them to know about your book. Oh, that sounds like an easy question. That's the <laughs> hardest one of all. Right. Um, I I don't know what I want anybody to get from it. I think I wrote it hoping there were people out there who ha- were having a hard time articulating what it feels like to be lonely or homesick or to have lost someone they love and and what happens in our culture so often is that people want to tell you that whatever hurts is gonna stop hurting quickly or it mm-hmm. it doesn't hurt as bad as you think it does or it's just God's way or it's just nature's way or whatever you know and and that's not helpful I don't think to somebody who's lost something that's important to them. I don't think it helps to say, well, other people have experienced worse losses or it didn't, it, 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 at least she's out of pain or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just don't think those things are helpful. And so I started out just trying to articulate my own feelings um, and experiences after my mother died very suddenly of a cerebral mm-hmm. hemorrhage. She wasn't ill. Um, she just was there and then she wasn't there. And, um, And that happened nine years after my dad died of a very long um, ordeal Mm -hmm. with cancer, which is a really different way to lose somebody. So anyway, I just was writing that down, just thinking it was um, maybe going to be helpful to to feel like for some people it might help them feel less alone. Yeah, often I say about this book that it's a a balm, and you know for. Uh, anybody who's going through any kind of grief, or or even if you're not necessarily, it's just uh, one way of thinking about it. You know, these seem like really hard times and dark days, and the news is often so terrible. And so this book is one of those books, I think, that you can, even after you've read it, you can pull it back down and find specific pieces to read again that, that operate that way. Um 
one one thing that you do a lot in the book is write about nature. And when writing about nature, it's so easy to veer off into sentimentality or preciousness, yet you never once do that. And one way you accomplish this is that you never look away from the hard aspects of nature. You often remind us that death and suffering are very common parts of nature and constant parts of life. So at one point you write, but even destruction can remind us of all the ways the world has found of working itself out. So almost always we examine the reality, but you bring us back to this note of hope. So can you talk a little bit about that and the way that, that you're able to do that in the book? Well, it does, I guess it sounds a little bit um, maybe counterintuitive, but for me, paying close attention to the natural world, even to those things that are hard, um, is comforting mm-hmm. because it reminds me that when hard things happen, when we have uh, experienced some loss, or or even in a more general sense, the, the way you mentioned about the hard times we're, we're having as a country right now, and I think we all feel that way, w- whatever our political orientation might right. be, I was having a conversation earlier today with the widower of the teacher I write about in the book, and he's a very, very conservative Christian, and and he and he's very he's heart sick about the state of the world, and I'm heart sick about the state of the world, and I but I bet we don't agree on a single thing <laughs> right. um, aside from that. So seeing seeing what happens in nature was for me a a great reminder that this is really just how the world works. It's I don't know where we got the idea that that suffering is the anomaly and that joy is the norm. Yes. But we we have both. We we have always had both and we will always have both. And that was very reassuring to me. It was almost a bomb to feel that um there's a there's a rhythm to it and I'm part of it. Right. And it's not anything to fear or to reject. It's just the way it works. Yes. I think that's one thing I really love about the book is that in between the lines it sort of says to me, you know, it's okay to to be melancholy sometimes. Um but but also you you're pretty revealing throughout the book, um about your mother's battle with depression and some of your own sadnesses or depression. So was it difficult for you to share that in the book or did you find it cathartic or both? I think one of the things that happened after mom died, my mother did not struggle with depression in her later life. She might've been the only person in, the history of humanity who went through menopause and got happier. Mm. But I think a lot of her depression was very, uh, was related to hormonal fluctuations. And once those ceased, she, she also felt much happier. And, um, but, but when I was beginning to write about my, my grief for her, I, after it, 
after it became clear to me, and that was some time on, maybe a year into writing these essays, it finally became clear to me that I might be writing a book. And this was a this was news to me. I'm 57 years old. I, you would think if I was going to write a book, I would have done it before now. But that it started sort of started to seem like maybe I was writing a book. And when that thought hit me, I I realized that if I was going to explain if people were going to understand why I missed my mother so much and her particularly, not just the idea of a mother, but my own actual mother, mm-hmm. they would need to know something about what kind of person she was and what kind of childhood she gave me. Right. And there's no avoiding that part of my childhood was, was lived according to the rhythms of, of her depression. And, um, and yet Somebody said to me the other day, it sounds like you had the idyllic childhood. Isn't that mm-hmm. funny? I think I did. I had the idyllic childhood, and yet we were not a perfect family. Things were not perfect. We didn't have enough money, and my mother was often closed up in her bedroom with the door closed mm-hmm. and the and the, drawn, the blinds drawn, even though it was really hot in lower Alabama, and we didn't have any air conditioning. Um, but the more I wrote about those things, the more it seemed impossible to tell this story without fairly and honestly, it would be impossible to tell without mentioning that. Right. Well, just from reading your work, I know that we have so much in common, uh, particularly our love for the natural world and our love for dogs. Your writing about dogs in particular just tears me down in all the best ways. Um, you talk about them with such tenderness, um, but also with, with such realism. And there's a chapter in the book called Howl that is like that, that, that strikes that balance so beautifully. So I, I'm going to ask you to read that for us. Howl. The old dog waits when the door shuts fast. Click goes the back door and thump goes the car door. And now the old dog believes he is alone in the house. When the whine of the car backing out of the drive gives way to the crunch of tires on the road and then to silence, the old dog believes he is alone in the world. Standing next to the door, he folds himself up, lowering his hindquarters gradually, bit by bit, slowly, until his aching haunches have touched the floor. Now he slides his front feet forward, slowly, slowly, and he is down. A moan begins in the back of his throat, lower pitch than a whine, higher than a groan, and grows. His head tips back, his eyes close. The moan escapes in a rush of vowels, louder and louder and louder, and now he is howling. It is the sound he made in his youth whenever an ambulance passed by on the big road at the edge of the neighborhood, but he can't hear so far anymore. Now he is howling in despair. He is howling for his long-life lost companion, the dog who died last year and left him to sleep alone. He is howling for his crippled hips, so weak he can hardly squat to relieve himself. He is howling because it's his job to protect this house, and he is too old now to protect the house. He is howling because the world is empty, 
and he is howling because he is still here. We're talking to Margaret Rinkle, author of the new book, Late Migrations, here on the porch on WUKY 91.3 FM. Thank you for reading that, Margaret. It's such a moving, uh, it's only one page, but it contains so much. Um, I have never not had a dog, and to me they just epitomize pure goodness. I find that the older I get, the more of a comfort they become to me. Would you say the the same is true for you? I think exactly. And, you know, you're the scene in at the beginning of Southernmost where the dog drowns just wrecks me. So I know that you have been through this. Yes. You couldn't have written that novel if you hadn't if you hadn't lost a dog. I think the thing about a dog that is different from any other kind of animal and I was I grew up in a household where with a great tolerance for for a wide, wide, wide variety of animals. There's pretty much nothing that we didn't have living in our house. I had a chicken sleeping on the footboard of my <laughs> childhood bed for a long time. But my parents <laughs> didn't mind. They, um, it, I don't know, I guess it made them happy for us to be happy, and we had everything. But the, a dog is different from all other creatures mm-hmm. because the dog, we, we sort of, created the dog in our own image i think mm-hmm. we right. they they're the most fully domesticated of all the companion animals and to love a dog is to be loved by a dog yes. the dog follows you with its eyes <laughs> wherever you go the dog i heard an interview with a veterinarian on npr one time and she said that dogs know a lot more about us than we know about them mm. because they are always studying us right. Exactly. When, when this dog in this in this essay died, he died last summer, um, right right as I was finishing the book, and he was the second old dog we lost last summer. Mm-hmm. We had two fifteen year old dogs, and they both died last summer. And my husband and I both thought, well, we're going to just take a little break. Maybe we'll be able to travel more <laughs> easily. We'll we'll just uh, we'll just have a little time away from. From caregiving, um, and two days before our children went back to college, uh, we went and got another dog. We just didn't, we, we couldn't even, we lasted a month I think, without a dog. Right. Well, another thing that seems to bring you great comfort is watching birds. They show up constantly in this book. Why is that, and have, have you always done that? I've always felt really uh, close to nature. I I spent my childhood almost entirely outdoors, and I was not an athlete. I was not playing sports. I was just walking around mm-hmm. in the woods. Um, and, you know, when my children were younger and I was working and my parents were growing older and frailer and my husband's parents were growing older and frailer, I just wasn't able to do that very much. I, there was no time, really, to just go and be mm-hmm. by myself in the woods. Um but I could hang bird feeders outside every window in the mm. house. And that's one part of nature that um, that you actually experience better from inside the house than outdoors, mm. I think, because um, they don't know you're watching them when you're, you know, behind the blind. Right. And, um, and, and so I just have always really, really loved watching the birds. They're just so wild. You know, they aren't mm-hmm. pets at all. They're 
they're alien creatures entirely, and yet they share the world so intimately with us. Another theme that I noticed throughout the book is storytelling. Throughout the book, you're showing us moments in particular of your grandmother telling you stories. She she tells you the story of your own birth, uh, stories about a family member's deaths, even a story about the time she got shot. So I loved all these stories, but they also made me think about how few young people hear stories like this now, how storytelling is, is a dying thing, I'm afraid. Uh, would you agree with that? I didn't think I, if if you'd asked me this question before the book came out, I would have said, oh, no, no, Southerners tell stories. I heard a writer talking about one time, I'm not going to name the writer because I don't want to get him in trouble, but he was telling a story about um, going to a dinner party somewhere in the Midwest, and he said it lasted 10 minutes. Nobody there could tell a story. <laughs> And and I think <laughs> I think that's so true. I mean, when when people get together, that's what they do. Even if it's we don't think of it as a you know that that old timey front porch right. storytelling. But at the same time, after my oldest son read Late Migrations, he said, "You never told me these stories. Hmm. I can't believe you never told me these stories." And I thought, how is it possible that I've never told my own child those stories? especially that child. He was a history major in college, and that's the kind of thing he's interested in. But we're busy. I guess we're all busy now. Mm -hmm. And and maybe that is an art we're losing. My mother grew up, and her brother grew up in the house with her parents and her grandparents. They didn't have anything, so they did. They told stories. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of it, too, is I think generations don't mix the way they used to. When I was growing up, I was around a lot of older people in a way that even my children were not, you know. Um, Right. I I think we're more age-segregated now. And, of course, technology is part of that, I think. I want to read you my favorite passage in the book. It goes, I am a creature of piney woods and folded terrain of birdsong and running creeks and a thousand shades of green, a forgiving soil that yields with each footfall. That hot land was a part of me, as fundamental to my shaping as a family member, and I would have remembered its precise features with an ache of homesickness, even if I had never seen it again. I just want to thank you for writing that because it resonates so deeply with me, and I know it will with lots of others. Um, there's something so interesting about being from a specific culture uh, that takes up residence in us. I live about 90 minutes from where I grew up, not very far away, really, but I am constantly homesick for that terrain, for the way people talk there in that slightly different way, and it's that homesickness is a really physical thing, so... Would you say that you remain homesick for specifically Lower Alabama, that place of your childhood and that time of your childhood? I I I think I must because we have a we have a a huge white pine tree. We have several pine trees in our yard, but we have a really really big one that's um, planted that that has grown up right next to the house. And it worries my husband every time the wind blows hard. Hmm. And 
you know, there's talk every now and then about maybe taking that pine tree down. And I just, I, there's not, that is not going to (laughs) happen while I'm on this earth, because I think that the light that comes through pine needles and the, the fall of pine straw on the ground, that is the closest thing to, I have that in the Blue Jays to feeling at home Mm. in middle Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even though I've been living in middle Tennessee for 31 years, far, far longer than I ever lived in Alabama, that's the landscape I was imprinted on. That's the landscape that feels real to me. And all the rest feel like poor approximations. I know exactly what you mean. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the structure. The structure of the book is very unusual. It's a very short essays, often, um, who which feel really complete on their own. But at the same time, when you read them all together, they become like this seamless piece of writing. I, I think the book's organization is, is just so smart. So I'm wondering how much of your process was spent just figuring out how to place these, how to order them. For a long time, I thought I was writing two different sets of essays. I thought I was writing about my childhood and about my parents and their aging and and the way I felt when Mm -hmm. they were gone. And at the same time, I was writing about the comfort that I found in the natural world not just the comfort that it gave me after my mom died, but also the comfort that I took from it after very specifically after the, the, the 2016 presidential election, I, I, the anger of the country and the ugliness that people felt perfectly uh, permitted to express out loud. Mm-hmm. It, tormented me really and I thought if I could just I really thought that this might go away (laughs) that I could just if I just spent a little less time focused on it and a little more time focused on the eternal things I would survive it and of course that's a very naive view but at some point it dawned on me I think maybe somebody had to tell me I think my my friends in my writers group finally had to say you know this is these are the same essays in a way. You're you're talking about loss. And once I thought about it that way, my first idea for organizing the book was to do a, a much more a simpler kind of pairing where there would be every family piece would have a, a nature essay that echoed it in some way, either mm-hmm. in its imagery or in its themes. And then... The more I wrote and the deeper I delved into my own memories of those years in the 1960s and early 1970s, the more I realized that it's not possible to separate those two things because my childhood was so deeply entwined with the natural world and my memories were so embedded in the natural world. So alternating wasn't really necessary because so many of the family essays were nature essays. And by the end of writing 50 or 60 of these, I was beginning to understand that the nature essays were family essays in a way. And so I was puzzled about how to manage it. There are over a hundred of these micro essays in this very short book. Hmm. And 
what order they needed to be in I, was a torment to me, really. I would yeah. spread them all out on the floor and then pick them all back up again <laughs> with no, no solution in sight. And then my editor at Milkweed Editions, the, my wonderful publisher for this book, my editor is uh, named Joey McGarvey, and she suggested the most the simplest solution to the problem. She said, "Put what if you tried putting the family essays in chronological order mm-hmm. and then let the nature essays fall wherever they could pick up a, a thread somehow? And, and once she settled that for me, it was much easier. Well, uh, speaking of your publisher, I think they did such a beautiful job with the book. It feels good to touch it, but mainly it's so perfectly illustrated, and we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that the artist is your brother, Billy Wrinkle. Um, did he do each of these pieces especially for the book, and was he inspired by particular pieces of writing, or how did that work? Initially, my idea for the book was to use artwork that Billy, uh, my brother Billy Wrinkle, had already made. He's a collage artist. He's only one year younger than I am. Hmm. And we grew up, as they say, in Catholic families like Irish twins. And so he was, I don't have any memories of life before Billy. Hmm. And he was in so many of these early essays. It didn't, I mean, and, and also when we were growing up, that was a, thing when we were constantly making little projects for people little Hmm. books for our parents or our grandparents our godmother just little i would write something and he would draw a picture to go with it Hmm. i mean right up through grad school we were working together on student publications and so i just it never crossed my mind to leave him out of this process but my idea was to let him use work that he had already done because his work is so close to mine in so many ways he's interested in birds and flowers and trees and and so um he had a a huge body of work that i that worked thematically and and almost illustratively for these essays we're talking to margaret wrinkle author of the new book late migrations here on the porch on wuky 91.3 fm listener supported radio well, Margaret, you just mentioned the eclipse, so I wondered if you would read that little passage from the book, and let's talk about it just for a minute. Sure. I know only that something ineffable, something beyond the reach of my own language, happened in the ordinary sky. The air turned blue and then silver. A dog barked. A bird whose song I don't know began to sing and then abruptly fell silent. The air cooled, and suddenly Venus was gleaming in the midnight blue pitch of the sky. The people under the trees at the edges of the meadow had moved into the darkness of the open field. By the time I looked down again, they had gathered a sheen that made them all look like angels. And at the center of everything was a ring of fire in the sky, a thin sliver of flame that burned as brightly as the sun, but was nothing like the sun. It was nothing like anything else I have ever seen, but I recognized it anyway because it was exactly like something I have heard. 
In Nashville, you can hear it wafting from the open door of any honky-tonk, a song about love, about desire. Like desire, it burned, 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 and it made me feel puny and insignificant, but also ablaze with life. The ancients believed an eclipse would bring the end of the world, but the end of the world did not come for me. I didn't wait for the sun to wax full again before heading home. I had to get out of there without talking to any of my fellow mortals, without hearing any of their earthly concerns. I had to leave while the air was still full silver. And all the way home, tiny crescents bespeckled the road, a path of fractured light that led me back to my own place in the world, right to my very door. Margaret, um, I've asked you to, uh, in advance, to to choose something of your own choosing from the book to read. So what, what would you like to share with us? I thought I would read the one about my my father taking me to watch the storm. Great. It's called In the Storm, Safe from the Storm, Lower Alabama, 1965. At my grandparents' house in the country, We live on the front porch where the ceiling fan blows the bugs away and stirs the steaming air into something passing for a breeze. At home in town, we are very modern and have no porch at all. There's a concrete stoop, but only the barest overhang to cover it, hardly anything to keep away the rain or the blistering sun. When a storm comes, My father sets his chair right in the doorway, straddling the jam. I love the storms. If I'm asleep, he lifts me up and carries me through the dark house to sit with him in the doorway and listen to the wind and the thunder. The rain comes and I feel it with the tips of my toes, but they are the only parts of me that get wet, for I have drawn my knees up to my chest under my nightgown and my father has unbuttoned his corduroy jacket and pulled it around me and wrapped his arms around me, too. I lean into him. I feel the heat from his body and the cool rain from the world, both at once. Thank you. I, I wanted you to read that just because I think it just uh, it shows the, just how lyrical this book is and and how profound you are in uh, capturing, you know, the the moments from just the everyday magic that happens. Uh, the book is full of that kind of, I mean, not that there's an eclipse every day, but you're capturing, you know, the natural world and the wonder of it, you know, in such a particular way throughout the book. So I love that. Um, I could talk to you all day, and I would really love to, and I've certainly loved reading your book. Um, so I want to thank you for writing it, and I'll encourage everybody out there. You can find it wherever fine books are sold. It is one of the best and most deeply moving books I've ever read. So thank you for being here today, Margaret. Oh, Silas, thank you for those kind words, and thank you for having me. I'm so grateful. And thanks to all of you for listening to another episode of On the Porch We're going to close the show with the song that was a touchstone for Margaret while writing Late Migrations, the great Ella Fitzgerald singing Every Time We Say Goodbye. Until next time, 
be good to one another. Thanks for listening to the podcast of On the Porch. I'm your host, Silas House. This episode was engineered and produced by DeBron Thomas at the studios of WUKY 91.3 FM in Lexington, Kentucky. We are listener-supported radio, and we thank you for joining us.